Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me. The title probably gives away most of what I'm going to talk about, but I will, towards the end of the lecture, cover a little bit about what I did while I was there and how we operated, both on the Queen's flight and a little my last five years were with uh, number 32, the Royal Squadron, at Northolt. And it's uh, a particular pleasure to see some members from there that I've known from the past. And uh, just as I was walking up, there was also someone who introduced himself as someone who knew me in Rutledge School CCF before I joined the Air Force. So it certainly is uh, going to be an interesting evening for me, if not for you. But Royal Flying, this year, of course, is the centenary of the Royal Air Force. But last year was the centenary of Royal Flying, as far as the British Royal Family was concerned, because during the war, it was the Prince of Wales who flew three times, twice in France over the front and once when this picture was taken in Italy. His brother, Prince Albert, also flew with the Royal Naval Air Service at the Royal Naval Air Station Sleaford, which we now know, of course, as Royal Air Force Cranwell. And it was actually Prince Albert, immediately after the war, who learned to fly in an Avro 504K, and he did it from what is now Croydon, or became Croydon Airport, Wadden Airfield, as it was in those days. And there's a picture of him talking to his instructor prior to going on one of his sorties. And at the end of 1919, he was gazetted in the London Gazette as a squadron leader and awarded his Royal Air Force wings. But probably the keener of the two brothers was the Prince of Wales. And he went flying again just after the war from Hounslow Aerodrome, uh, just near where Heathrow is today. And he took along some members of King George V's household to watch him uh, take off. He flew with one of the pilots who'd flown him during the war. And uh, they took off, did some aerobatics and... Uh, came back down, did some circuits, and eventually, after about 40 minutes, landed and taxied back into dispersal. The pilot who'd flown him uh, had, in fact, been awarded the VC, Captain Ball. He'd been awarded the VC, and during one day, during the First World War, he'd flown five sorties. On the first sortie, he took a bullet through the knee, but he carried on flying. On the fifth sortie of the day he took a bullet through the elbow, which actually shattered his elbow joint. And when he flew the Prince of Wales from Hounslow, he was still suffering. And in fact, he operated the throttle with the crook of his elbow. Now that story got back to King George V the very next day, and he immediately banned both his sons from flying. And if you wanted proof, there he is actually taking his arm out of a sling. So there was no raw flying in the early 20s and the middle 20s, and we have to jump right through to 1928, when after a lot of pressure on King George V, the Prince of Wales was allowed to be flown by 24 Squadron to one of his own engagements. It was to the Norfolk and Norwich Area Club in Norwich, and I think the thing that's interesting here is the huge crowd. Of course, not only was the Prince of Wales very popular, but people still then was turning out to just see aircraft fly, of course. The problem for him really was that to do it, he had to dress like this. Not really conducive to going on a royal visit, I think you'll agree. Um, however, 
he thought about it, and after a few trips like that, he went back to King George V and said, I'd like to buy my own aircraft. And the reply, as almost he expected, was no. Um, it's too dangerous, this flying game. But eventually, after a lot of pressure, he was told he could buy his own aircraft. And he bought this uh, gypsy moth, and it was moved from RAF Northolt, where he uh, had gone solo at the end of 1929 in the November. He did a 10-minute solo flight, uh, which again was the next question after he'd asked the king, could he buy it, could he fly it? Um, but the king initially again said no, but eventually he gave in, as he was wont to do. But immediately after he had gone solo, the pilot who'd sent him solo uh, was a pilot from 24 Squadron, and he said to him, look, I've got a full RAF career. I can't look after your flying as well as my own flying, so it would be really a good idea if you got yourself a personal pilot. So they got a uh, guy who'd recently retired, an RAF flight lieutenant, Edward Fielden. And he took over as the personal pilot to the Prince of Wales. And here you see the aircraft on one of the trips. And what had happened, instead of the flying suit, he wore an Irving jacket over his suit. When he landed, he stood up, folded the Irving jacket up, put it on the back seat, and uh, he was ready to go on a royal visit. With one exception, of course, the hat. That had to be handed to him by a flunky on arrival. The, as soon as Fielden took over as his ca uh, captain, he started looking at replacement aircraft because it was fairly obvious that really there ought to be, uh, uh, certainly his private secretary go with him, and in some cases, even in those days, a security officer. So they got a, the moth, the puss moth, and to show you how keen the prince was, in 1931, he did an overseas tour to South America. And uh, they took the wings off the uh, Puss Moth. They put it on HMS Eagle, the aircraft carrier. They sailed it out to South America, reassembled it out there, and he used the aircraft on that tour. He also, while he was on that tour, became the first member of the royal family to land on an aircraft carrier when he sat in the back seat of this Fairy 3 and landed back one evening on HMS Eagle. Once he got back to UK, if he was visiting an RAF station, he would allow the RAF to fly him. If he was going to a civilian organisation, he'd use his own aircraft. But here you see him in 1931 again at Royal Air Force Andover in Hampshire when he was visiting the squadrons on exercise there, as you can see, wearing the delightful flying suit of the day. But again, his aircraft now, Fielden was looking for bigger and better aircraft, and the next one that came along was the Fox Moth. And this, of course, gave uh, Fielden a cockpit with a cover, and he was separate from the royal party who were in the passenger cabin. But, of course, we're now getting to the early to middle 30s, and airliners were becoming the thing. And here is the Vickers Viastra, which... Uh, Prince of Wales was actually asked to help design the internal fit for VIP use. And he did so, and as part of this, he visited uh, the Vickers factory. Um, if I go back to that one, you can see where it is, of course, with the raised banking around Brooklands. And uh, 
There you can see him being greeted by the managing director, and the gentleman getting out of the uh, aircraft is actually Edward Fielden. Looks to be in civilian clothes, but if you look, he's got his wings on his blazer. Now this next picture, if you think about it, is three kings. King George V in the middle, uh, King Edward VIII on his right, and on his left, the future King George VI. Now, that picture was taken, as you can see, on July the 6th, 1935. It was King George V's Silver Jubilee. And they were departing. That was taken uh, in uh, Buckingham Palace Gardens. And that afternoon, they flew up to Mildenhall and reviewed the Royal Air Force. And there you see him, uh, the king sitting in the... Rolls-Royce at the front uh, and his two sons behind. Now the aircraft that the prince had by now had gone up to a twin engine, um, the uh, Dragon Rapide, and this aircraft became famous in royal circles because it was the first one to fly a British monarch. Because the day after King George V died, King Edward VIII flew from Bircham Newton, a little airstrip near Sandringham, down to Hendon to attend his accession council. By now, his aircraft were all had been moved to Hendon because 24 Squadron wanted them out of their hangar. So Hendon was a place he got to know really well. And then, as soon as he became king, he asked two questions of the air ministry. The first one was, would they fund the operation of this aircraft? He would have been entitled to a Royal Air Force aircraft to go to official functions. But as he got his own, he said, look, would you pay for the engineering and fuel, and I'll use my own aircraft. And the Air Ministry agreed. The next question, almost immediately afterwards, would you form a royal flight? So the King's flight was formed at Hendon on the 21st of July, 1936. Its first commanding officer, or captain of the King's flight, as he was known, was Wing Commander Edward Field, and he was promoted and brought back within the service to run the King's flight. So he looked after, he flew the aircraft, he looked after all the bookings, he looked after all the planning, and also brought in some RAF engineers to cover all the engineering on the repeat. Just a year after that last trip to Mildenhall, it was now King Edward VIII visiting Mildenhall to review the Royal Air Force. And uh, the aircraft, there's an internal shot of the Rapide, and uh, the pilot, of course, sat in the middle at the front. But this um, clock and altimeter is in the Museum of Royal Flying now, um, still keeping very good time. And uh, the King's flight carried on, but, of course, not for long with King Edward VIII, because at the end of that year of course, came the abdication, and there could be another talk about that. Uh, the 11th of December, 1936, and we had then the classic case. It could only happen in Britain. We had a king who was now King George VI. We had a king's flight. It had a commanding officer or captain of the king's flight, Edward Fielden, but what it didn't have was an aircraft because when it, King George VI took over, he found the repeated gone. It had been taken away by Edward VIII. So the first thing Fielden had to do as, uh, for the new king was find an aircraft for him to fly, and find pretty quickly. And it was thanks to the company in Portsmouth, the Airspeed Company in Portsmouth, that the Airspeed Envoy came about. And I think you can see straight away, although this was 
January 1937, how suddenly aircraft start to look a little bit different. The, the early airliners are now looking, this is looking a much uh, more like aircraft we knew to be later on. And the king used the aircraft regularly, and other members of the air, uh, royal family used the aircraft up until the outbreak of the war. And at the outbreak of war, there were a couple of changes. First of all, the king's flight moved from, North, from uh, Hendon to Royal Air Force Benson near Wallingford in Oxfordshire. The air ministry decided that Hendon was too close to the centre of London for comfort, and therefore... Uh, it should be moved. Now, Fieldham wanted them to go to Smith's Lawn at Windsor Castle. Not as silly as it seemed, because Smith's Lawn had been used throughout the 1930s as a light aircraft landing ground, and the Prince of Wales had landed there a number of times. But nevertheless, it was uh, decided that Royal Air Force uh, Benson would be the place to go. The other thing was that they decided the King would always fly in an armed aircraft. And they couldn't really arm the airspeed envoy. There was no practical way of doing it. So they had to look for another aircraft for the king to fly in. Eventually, they came up with one. It was an American one, Lockheed Hudson, which had two gun emplacements, one in the nose and one in the tail. Fielden flew in the left-hand seat. He put an RAF engineer in the right-hand seat. Another RAF engineer manned the guns in the front cockpit. And I went to a dinner of the Queen's Flight Association about 10 years ago now, and we had a wonderful talk from a 92-year-old gentleman who had actually been one of those guys who manned the guns in the front during the war. And he confirmed a story which I was already telling, but it was nice to hear it from the horse's mouth, in the fact that those guns were never fired in anger during the war. And the second part of the story was that the rear gun was inside the royal cabin. And because of that, the royal household would not allow an RAF engineer into the cabin in order to fire the guns. And after much wrangling, it was agreed that the steward would fire the guns. <laughs> now, the steward wasn't even in the services. He was a footman from Buckingham Palace. So it's probably just as well they were never fired in anger. But the aircraft was used by the king and by... Other members of the royal family, that's the Duke of Kent, who sadly, of course, was killed in 1942 in that Sunderland flying boat accident. But by then, again, the air ministry had decided that if the enemy saw a Hudson with a fighter escort, they would surmise the king was on board, and therefore that wasn't safe. So they disbanded the king's flight in February 1942, and Fielden took the aircraft and the engineers that were around and the other pilots to join 161 Squadron at Newmarket, where Fielden, in fact, became the squadron commander. And after one winter at Newmarket, the heavier aircraft on the squadron, which were Halifaxes, were getting bogged down. So they moved to Thamesford, which had a concrete runway just off the A1 in Cambridgeshire, and uh, they carried on there, with Fielden becoming the station commander. 161 Squadron were obviously the squadron you probably remember, were those that dropped... SOE operatives behind enemy lines in France in support of the French resistance. And Fielden had a very successful wartime career uh, flying the, uh, the Hudson, uh, as well as, uh, obviously, there were Lysanders and uh, the Halifaxes as well, but he concentrated on the, uh, the Hudson and had a very successful 
wartime career. Come the end of the war, there were again a couple of changes. First of all, the King's Fight was reformed at Royal Air Force Benson. And secondly, there was to be a new commanding officer. And that was a New Zealand wing commander called Bill Taken. Now, Fielden carried on in the post of captain of the King's Flight, and he looked after all the protocol side, dealing with Buckingham Palace and the royal households, while Bill Taken looked after the flying side. The other thing that changed was the aircraft, because they needed to order new aircraft, and they ordered the same as BEA ordered, the Vickers Viking. Initially, two were ordered, but soon afterwards, the households had a meeting and decided that in future, all uh, royal tours, wherever possible, would be done by air, and therefore they needed more aircraft. And in fact, they pinched two of the BA order because they needed them for early 1947 for the first royal tour to the Union of South Africa. And there you see three of the four Vikings lined up at Bloemfontein on that very tour. The first aircraft carried the King and Princess Margaret. The second one carried the Queen and Princess Elizabeth. Now, the King and Queen could fly together, but the King couldn't fly with Princess Elizabeth. The same as today, Her Majesty can't fly with the Prince of Wales. The Prince of Wales can't fly with Prince William. The only change to that was when the two uh, young princes uh, went on holiday with the Prince and Princess of Wales. With the written permission of Her Majesty, we were allowed to fly all four of them together until Prince William became 12. And after that, we would fly Prince Harry and uh, his mother and father. And normally, a 125 from 32 Squadron would take Prince William to wherever they were going. The reason, obviously, is to preserve the line of the throne. The third aircraft carried the ground crew. And on this very trip, they flew 160,000 miles and stayed serviceable within the spares backup that they took. And the fourth aircraft carried those spares. And it was flown by this chap. Does anyone recognize him? Trubshaw, yes. Townsend is a popular name I get, but it isn't him. It is Brian Trubshaw, in fact, who was a captain, Viking captain, on the King's Flight. A very bright pilot even then, as we shall see a little bit later. There's the cockpit of the Viking, nothing VIP about that, exactly the same as all the others. Um, the seating at the back, two seats, one for the uh, king, one for the queen. Uh, on the right-hand side was a, a baggage area. And the Viking was still in service when, in 1952, uh, the queen's flight was formed on the death of King George VI. And uh, you're probably watching The Crown and have seen... Uh, what went on there, but uh, the first flight back for the Queen was not with the Queen's flight, it was actually with BOAC as she came back into Heathrow from Africa uh, to meet, be met by her government. She used the uh, Vikings regularly. This picture was taken at Royal Air Force Morton and Marsh in Gloucestershire when her and Prince Philip were uh, visiting, and Prince Philip himself used the Viking to his own engagements. And immediately after Her Majesty had been crowned in 1953, he announced he'd like to learn to fly. So two of the Royal Air Force trainers of the day were brought to uh, RAF Benson 
and after some minor modifications, they were uh, allowed to fly, and he did most of his flying on a daily basis. They would fly from Benson to RAF White Waltham near Maidenhead, junction 8-9 of the M4 now, and he would do his flying there because in those days, of course, there were no motorways. So if he was in London, driving all the way out to Wallingford would take him half a day. So they sort of met halfway. And if he was at Windsor Castle, well, it was fine. It was just down the road. After he'd flown the chipmunk, he moved on to the Harvard and did some more single-engine flying on a more uh, powerful aircraft. He then did some twin-engine flying on the de Havilland Dove, and then the Royal Navy loaned him one of their de Havilland herons, and he started flying himself to his own engagements and with a Queen's Flight captain in the right-hand seat. And he continued to do that on fixed wing until he was 70. Sorry, 75. 75 on fixed wing. The chipmunks came back into service in 1970 when the Prince of Wales wanted to learn to fly. And uh, I'd been showing this slide for about 10 years, and I was at a WI one evening, and a little old lady said, what's that pigeon doing on the top? <laughs> well, it's not a pigeon, although it does look a bit like it there, but there it is, the modification that they put on. And you can see it's a 1950s modification. See the bolt with no protection underneath? Um, Pre-health and safety, shall we say. But, uh, of course... After the uh, prince had flown the chipmunk, he moved the next year to Cranwell, and on the Jet Provost Mark V, he did nine months course and passed out with his wings. Moving on after that to uh, the Beagle Bassett for twin engine training, and eventually he started to fly the Andover. Uh, a couple of other royal pilots. There's Prince Andrew. While he was still at Gordonston, uh, learning to fly a glider before going also into the Royal Navy to fly helicopters like his, his uh, elder brother. Now, of course, we've got a couple of other Royal pilots. There's uh, Prince William being, gaining his wings after a three-month course at uh, Cranwell from his father before moving on to Valley, where initially he was a co-pilot on the Sea King and then a captain, and then... More recently, of course, he was with the Cambridge Air Ambulance based at Cambridge Airport. The other pilot, of course, was Prince Harry, who gained his wings, again from his father, but in the Army Air Corps. Now, let's go back to the history. Uh, after the uh, Viking came the Heron. Now, Fielden had wanted the Viscount, the same as BEA had replaced their Vikings with the Viscount, but the dreaded accountants said, no, it's too expensive. So they got the heron. And the day the heron was introduced and announced, Fielden was up in London at the Air Ministry. He came back onto the hangar floor and said to the assembled pilots, engineers, and admin staff, gentlemen, we asked for a Daimler. They've given us a Ford. <laughs> now, the problem was... It was still unpressurized, so it, could no, it couldn't go above 10,000 feet, so no different from the Viking there. It wasn't air-conditioned, and yet they wanted to operate it around the world, so there was a problem there. The major problem was it needed refueling more often than the Viking, so there exactly wasn't a lot of progress. But inside, it was very comfortable, nice comfortable seats, big tables that you could work at or eat at. 
I think the thing that stands out is the huge windows. But of course, I'm pressurised, it wasn't a problem. I'm sure some of you have flown in Concorde, and you look at those windows in comparison with what Concorde had, it's ridiculous. Now, the crew, they flew with the navigator because they wanted to go worldwide. Uh, there wasn't room for him on the flight deck, so he sat in the front row of the passenger cabin, and they did operate it all around the world. This picture was taken at Anugu in Nigeria with Her Majesty and Prince Philip. And later on, on that same tour, they moved on to the Gold Coast, or Ghana as it was by then, and they were flying from Accra to a strip-up country about an hour away. After half an hour, someone measured the temperature on board, and it was 125 degrees Fahrenheit. So you can imagine Her Majesty trying to look neat and tidy getting out at the other end, nigh on impossible. So as soon as the Heron had come into service, they were looking for a replacement. It came in 1964 in the form of the Avro 748 or the Andover Mark II, as it was known in military circles. Initially, two were delivered and one Heron remained. And then three years later, 1967, a third Andover came along, having come back from Aden, where it had originally been based. Now, here's a picture of the Andover in use in 1970 at a strip in Ethiopia called Dubti. And there's a couple of things I want you to note. First of all, how clean the underside is and the propellers and so forth. And the second thing is the two flags or standards on top. I'll talk about those a little bit later. And when I say clean, I mean clean, as you can see here. But the problem was <clears throat> our engineers were polishing it so hard that they were polishing out the rivets. So there really was, there really was a problem. But luckily it was solved at Slough by ICI's paint division because they were just introducing polyurethane paint. And to keep polyurethane paint clean, it was just a chamois leather and water, much the same as you would do with your car. So the problem was solved, and it really was a big problem in the making, but luckily the polyurethane paint came along at the right time. It also introduced the famous red, white, and blue paint scheme. The REF flash at the back was replaced by the Union flag, and that uh, colour scheme stayed until, and I'm looking over there, about four years ago? Eight years ago, yes. Time flies when you're retired. Um, but um, they changed the colour scheme because of security. This was there so it was easy to be seen, but now security has overtaken the conspicuity. Um, inside the Andover, let's have a look inside. The four seats in the royal cabin there, Her Majesty, Prince Philip, Private Secretary and Lady-in-Waiting were the normal ones. Um, that tea service um, was in use in the Viking and on the Andover and it was still in use on the 146 when I was there and I suspect it's probably still around today somewhere. Uh, the aircraft that replaced the Andover in 1986 was the British Aerospace 146. Initially, again, two were delivered, built, both built at Hatfield, and a third one, uh, which was built at the Avro factory at Woodford after Hatfield closed, was delivered in 1990. But I mentioned a certain Concorde pilot a few minutes ago. Let's go back now to 1947, because Brian Trubshaw was involved with helicopter trials to see whether a helicopter was suitable for royal flying. 
and he learnt to fly the helicopter. And they were flying mail from Aberdeen Dice up to Balmoral every day, and then any return mail went back to Aberdeen, and BEA flew it back to London. It was very successful. Things moved slowly, though, in royal circles, and it was 1953 before there was any actual royal flying on a helicopter. The Central Flying School loaned uh, the Queen's flight a helicopter, and it was really Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and Prince Philip who pushed for the Queen's flight to get their own helicopters. It came in 1958 in the form of the Westland Whirlwind, and it revolutionised royal flying. Instead of them being able to do two engagements in a day, they were doing five engagements because it was so easy to hop back in the helicopter, fly off to a sports field or a hospital car park or something like that, um, and carry on rather than driving everywhere. Sadly, in 1967, after a major servicing, they were flying down, funnily enough, to Westland's factory at Yeovil to talk about a replacement helicopter. But sadly, the head had been replaced or reset, and the bolts on the top weren't reset properly, and it came off in flight, killing then the, all the crew together with the captain of the Queen's flight and the senior engineering officer. So the whirlwinds were grounded and never flew again in royal circles. The replacement helicopter came two years later in the form of the Westland Wessex. And I'll show you a picture later in the presentation of that helicopter going on its very last royal flight uh, 30 years ago, almost at the end of this month, the 31st of March, 1998. And here's a picture of Her Majesty getting off a helicopter for the very first time. This was her Silver Jubilee in 1977, and she spent the night on board a Royal Naval vessel off the Irish coast and was flown into uh, Belfast to start her engagement. The gentleman saluting her is the then captain of the Queen's flight, uh, Commodore Sir Archie Winskill, who was my first captain when I arrived in 1981. He retired at the very end of that year. An ex-Battle of Britain Spitfire pilot on 32 Squadron and uh, a wonderful character. It's quite interesting there. He's wearing black shoes, but I have seen many a photograph of him dressed exactly like that, but wearing bundu boots. He was just a man of his own. The uniform never really thing. But he was the f Her Majesty thought he was wonderful. Now, the big advantage, of course, of the helicopter, it can pick you up in your back garden if you happen to live at Windsor Castle or at uh, Buckingham Palace where they hold the garden parties. The helicopter used to land there. The two hour, uh, Kensington Palace had a nice grass area alongside to land in and the two out-of-town houses, Gatcombe and Highgrove, they were surrounded by their own fields so there was no problem there. But there was a plan to get fixed wing to pick people up uh, the royal family much closer to home, much closer to central London. And I'm not talking about London City or RAF Northolt. This was the plan. <laughs> Actually, that was drawn by a guy called Buck Rogers, who's an ex-Red Arrows pilot who became one of our co-pilots. And when I was going to get an award at Buckingham Palace, he sent me a card. Uh, I thought, absolutely wonderful, so I've had to include it. Uh, but the great thing about the helicopter, it gets you to places where you couldn't get to by fixed wing without a lot of trouble. This is the Western Isles of Scotland, and there was no suitable road link, there was no rail link. 
the harbour was too small for the Royal Yacht, so the helicopter was really the only option. But you can see from the terrain, that wasn't the end of the problem. So eventually they selected to land on the beach, tied the visit in with the tide turntable, and away they go. Now, Prince Philip also flew the uh, helicopter. He learnt to fly as soon as the uh, Queensight got helicopters. And he continued to do that until he was 70. 70 on helicopters, 75 on fixed wing. The reason he stopped eventually both was because he had arthritis in his hands. And particularly with the helicopter, twisting and pulling the collective was a really big problem. So he had to give that up first. Now, the cabin of the Wessex normally had either five or seven seats in, depending on how many passengers or how far they were going. The only crew member in there would be the crew chief, who was an engineer, and he would, if necessary, serve the food, which would only be a tray of sandwiches or an afternoon tea or something like that. If he were, it was an evening visit, he would sit on a little bar box, which had a bottle of gin, bottle of whiskey, bottle of red wine, a bottle of white wine, and a bottle of Dubonnet. Now, you can see where he kept the uh, tonic water for the gin. Look, under the uh, chair. Now, here's a picture of the helicopter in the field picking up a member of the royal family. It's the Princess Royal, as you can see. Now, behind... Um, the person being greeted is the Lord Lieutenant. Behind him, the Chief Constable. The one with the fluffy hat on is the lady-in-waiting. The RAF uniform is Air Vice Marshal Sir John Seven, who was then the uh, captain of the Queen's Fight. The other guy here is actually a Metropolitan Police Sergeant. And what he's actually doing there, if you look at his hands, he's taking the magazine of bullets out of the pistol. He'll put the pistol in one pocket the bullets in the other, and when they land, he'll rearm and carry on with his security duties. Now, the first photograph I showed you at RAF Morton in the Marsh was taken in 1953, where with four Vikings, they did 60 royal flights in the year. That last one was taken in 1985, and with just one additional aircraft, three fixed-wing and two helicopters, we were doing 1,200 royal flights. So if a Majesty flew... There was no backup aircraft because the other aircraft were always in use. And uh, so how did we do it? Well, it was our engineers, and I pay homage to them. They were the ones who kept the aircraft going. Our aircraft had snags, the same as everywhere else, but they would work tirelessly. And it didn't matter when the aircraft was next needed, although in those days it was nearly always the next day. But they would work on it overnight. They did most of their engineering overnight. Our families used to say, you're away three months of the year, we don't see a lot of you. But those poor guys, they lived and worked at Benson, and their families lived at Benson, but they probably saw less of their families than we did, uh, than our families did. But anyway, I think the thing that stands out, whether it's the fixed-wing end or the helicopter end, is how clean that hangar floor is. Now, air, aircraft develop leaks like everybody else's, but it's very easy to spot when you've got a floor that clean. And it was that sort of husbandry that kept the record up, and we had a magnificent serviceability record of 98.9%. So 99.9%. After we had flown, we would brief or debrief the crew chief who flew with us with any snags we'd noticed and any he'd picked up, and he would pass them on to the shift boss when he got into the hangar, the aircraft were then inspected fully, and if there was a problem with, in this case, a 146 engine, 
they w it would be changed. We had two spare engines, and by rotating them, we were able to uh, keep going. And uh, it would take about four hours. But the big thing with the 146, although it was high wing, these guys are virtually standing at floor level, so you don't need masses of equipment to change the engine. So it was actually quite a well ergonomically arranged engine. And, of course, the cleaning. I mentioned a chamois leather and water, but if you look here, he's using a brush and a rag because if we ever get a sunny summer and it gets hot, sometimes at the bottom of your car doors get little flecks of asphalt on. And it's the same with the aircraft taxiing on asphalt. Then it flicks up. And if you don't get it off quickly, of course, when you do get it to take it off, it scratches the surface. So every day they would go... And every, after every sector... Uh, if the crew chief was on his own, then he would go round and keep an eye on it. And if he needed some help, he'd just come and ask the crew to come and give him a hand, which we willingly did. And, of course, why was he doing it? Well, he's proud to be a member of the Queen's Flight. But it's the services. So the real reason he's doing it was because if he didn't get it right, he'd be on a charge because his NCO was inspecting it ten minutes later. Now, the 146. Two delivered, as I said, in 1986... Um, after a lot of struggle, we got the uh, delivery confirmed. Uh, the BAC 111 had been discussed earlier, and Prince Philip had actually flown on a tour with the 111 on a sales tour. But eventually, the 146 was selected. Why was the 100 series, the smallest one, selected? Well, A, it was the earliest off the production line. But secondly, it had a very good short takeoff and landing performance. And our primary role was still to fly the royal family to all over Britain. So as well as going to the big international airports like Manchester and Glasgow, we needed to get into Dundee, Carlisle, Sheffield, Plymouth, the last two have now closed, but in my day they, they were 146 destinations as well. And quite small airfields, but the 146 coped remarkably. It was also probably the quietest four-engine airliner built. And uh, the short-field performance came in useful at London City as well. It was the first aircraft to be cleared for the steep approach into London City. And if you go in there now, you still see the next derivative of the 146, the RJs, the regional jets, going in and out of there um, regularly. Now, the 146 cockpit was designed for two pilots, although on the Queen's flight, and initially when we went to Northolt, um, we carried a navigator on the jump seat. There were two GPS or inertial nav system boxes. The other one's just out of sight here. And eventually, when we got to Northolt, they decided there wasn't really a requirement for the navigator. Initially, while the crews were learning the aircraft, it was very sensible to have an extra guy sitting there as a safety valve. Um, but, of course, the Navigators' Union, who I suspect there are some here, um, they were saying there's no chance you'll be able to do the timing like we do and so forth. But it's amazing. Those little uh, sort of garments of the air are wonderful, and we were able to uh, do it um, quite regularly. So uh, they were a little bit disappointed, I must admit. Um, but it was a two-pilot aeroplane, and the equipment was all designed to be used by two people. The big change with the 146 was the galley. 
Cooking in the Andover was like cooking in a caravan, and there's no other way of describing it. Um, but when we got the 146, we had two blower ovens, so we could take food from frozen and have it ready for service 20 minutes after we were airborne, which was normally top of climb. So, you know, it was a big change. If we went away on a long tour, we would take about six days' food with us. In my day, it came from British Airways at Heathrow. It's now a civilian contractor from elsewhere. But <clears throat> BA would put it uh, on. It would be driven out to Benson. The stuff for the day was put on board. The others was put in a cold box with dry ice and kept in the hold. And then we'd use that as we went round. After that, whenever we got further down route, we would pick up from any airfield recommended by British Airways. If it wasn't recommended by British Airways, we'd look for a five-star hotel, uh, which was normally where we were staying at any rate. So it would, um, that's the reason we had to stay, of course, because the stewards needed to discuss the catering and so forth. Um, you understand. Um, but that meant that we could pick up from five-star hotels. If there was nothing available there, then the bottom line, which often happened when you were operating up country in Africa to a strip, invariably with the Princess Royal, because she was president of Save the Children Fund, and although the Foreign Office organized much of the tour, she was normally able to visit some Save the Children uh, projects as well. And, of course, they were never anywhere near five-star hotels. They were always near the border with refugee camps and so forth. So... Um, we never left Benson without the bottom line of catering. You can still get them. Those flat meat pies by Frey Bentos, you know the ones? <laughs> We'd have those. We'd have tinned potatoes, tinned vegetables. The stewards would tart up a gravy. They'd add onions and a few spices and so forth. And we'd serve the hot food to them in the middle of Africa. And you know they used to love it. Absolutely love it. I think it was such a change from that Ponzi first-class food that they were getting everywhere else. <laughs> now, behind the galley was what would normally, in most aircraft, be first-class. But in fact, in our case, that's where the crew, the engineers, sat, either the crew chief. And if we went on a long overseas tour, we'd normally take three other um, tradesmen with us to give us full trade cover, um, or the major trades, at any rate. Um, and then the middle cabin was where the household staff would sit and the policemen, uh, the secretaries. Initially, and this photograph shows it, with the aircraft was delivered a photocopier and an electric typewriter. <laughs> but, of course, now they, uh, they all bring their own laptops and, uh, and so forth, so it's not a problem. But it did mean the uh, staff could operate while they were airborne. And very often on the way back from a trip, they were writing out the thank you letters already. So, um, you know, it was important that we could provide that service. The rear cabin now in the 146 was six seats uh, in normal circumstances. There you could put a divan down there, but because the aircraft had to land every five, four and a half, five hours for fuel, as soon as they got to sleep, it was time to tap them on the shoulder and say, would you mind sitting up because it's time to land? So we had these sort of sleeperette seats, so to speak, where the leg and rest would come up and they could stretch out and the backs would go back. So they normally slept in that. But as six seats, as I say, uh, Her Majesty Prince Philip, 
private secretary lady in waiting. And then if you went on an overseas tour, it would normally be the British ambassador or the British high commissioner and uh, a representative of the foreign affairs department of the host country. Now, that left one person out, and there was always a battle when we did recce's. It wasn't from the RF's point of view, but it was for the household's point of view. The private secretary always had to fight off the wife of the British ambassador or British high commissioner who thought she should be in the royal cabin. But I didn't see one of them win in 20 years. <laughs> the first royal flight on a 146 was the honeymoon of the Duke and Duchess of York. And that picture appeared in most of the daily papers the following day. And along with this one, our engineers have been busy in the hangar overnight and uh, wedding bells and uh, horseshoes and just married and a nail plate. Um, now, the crew had told the press to look at the back of the aircraft as they taxied out and they opened the air brakes and there was the picture. The captain of the Queen's flight was on board, but he didn't know anything about this. <laughs> and I tell you me, if he'd seen that at Heathrow, he'd have gone ballistic. He didn't find out, in fact, until about five days later when they went to the Azores to pick the royal party up and they took out the last five days' papers so the royals could look at it and see how the wedding had been covered. And when he saw it, of course, no one by then had complained. So he saw the funny side of it, but he wouldn't have done it, Heathrow. Now, the red carpet, the bane of our lives, we always used to say to host stations, whether it be overseas or in UK, um, very rarely did you get a red carpet at a civilian airfield in UK, but you did at some RAF stations. And <clears throat> we would say to them, please have the red carpet out by all means, put it outside the wingtip, the royal will come down the steps and she will, or he will walk to the carpet. So line everybody up alongside the carpet. So you taxi in and you could see Guy on the end of the carpet doing this to his pal who's got the tennis bats at the front. And uh, when the door gets in line with the carpet, never any anticipation, he would do this to his pal who'd cross the bats. You'd come gently to a halt because you knew by now half your passengers were standing anyway. And you were normally, on average, about eight yards past the red carpet. Well, that's not a problem, because the briefing was clear. The steps will come down, the roar will come down, and then they will walk to the carpet. Now, I was in Lagos on a state arrival, and uh, this involved a hundred ministers standing alongside the red carpet. And we went our duty eight yards past the red carpet. And they stood there for a little while, and I was just looking over the wing, and a couple of them broke ranks and started to shuffle forward. And, of course, once two go, the rest start. But, of course, they were halfway through this manoeuvre when the roar came down the steps and started striding towards the red carpet. And they all suddenly stopped and started shuffling back. It was absolutely hilarious. And, you know, it, those sort of things do actually help the royal tour go well because it keeps the royals amused because after that they've got to shake a hundred hands they've got to listen to a 21 gun salute and you know it really is painful um, this is a royal arrival in UK in fact at Royal Air Force Cranwell and uh, I mentioned the crew we had uh, two pilots two stewards a crew chief and if we were going on a long trip three 
other engineers. This is also uh, a group captain who was a deputy captain. But once we were doing 1,200 royal flights a year, the captain couldn't go on uh, all of them. They always flew with a female passenger travelling on their own and any overseas trips. So eventually we ended up with two deputy captains. One of them, this one in fact, was also, as his secondary duty, he was station commander at Royal Air Force Benson. Um, but he managed to do quite a lot of flying with us as well. Another one was a full-time deputy captain. The other chap here is the security man. It happens to be a warrant officer. It could have been a corporal policeman. We had uh, corporals, we had a sergeant policeman, one flight sergeant, and the warrant officer. And they would look after the baggage and the security of the aircraft, both on the ground once we were away from the aircraft. The gentleman going to meet the Royal Passenger is the Lord Lieutenant, in uniform this time. Now, why is he in uniform this time, and yet and when you saw the helicopter, he wasn't? Well, he's on concrete, and part of his uniform is spurs. And if you've tried to walk in long grass with spurs on, it's not very easy. So they have dispensation to wear suits when they're walking on grass. Um, you probably don't recognise the royal. It's actually His Majesty the Sultan of Brunei who was representing Her Majesty the Queen at Cranwell for one of the Royal Wings parades, just as she does the Sovereign's Parade at Cranwell every year. Um, either Her Majesty or a representative goes to one of the Wings parades at Cranwell, and it happened to be while the, uh, um, His Majesty was doing a state visit. And uh, after he'd reviewed the pilots that day. In the afternoon, he opened a lecture theatre paid for by the Brunei government as a thank you to the Royal Air Force for training their pilots. Now, there are three buzzwords about royal flying. The first one is safety, which is obviously paramount. The second is comfort, and we try and make the trip as comfortable as possible. And the third one is timing, and an on-time arrival for us, plus or minus five seconds. And we made it on over 90% of occasions. We used to operate the 146 at 250 knots indicated, which gave us about 30 knots we could speed up and about 20 knots we could slow down. You could pick up about seven minutes an hour in the air. So as long as the rolls were there and thereabouts, and they were very good at getting there on time, particularly for departures, in the evening coming back, it didn't really matter so much because very often they weren't, all they were doing was going back into London and they didn't have other engagements, so it didn't matter so much. But the ones that did matter, then they were normally, of course with the help of the Metropolitan Police Escort Party and so forth, they were normally pretty well on time. Now, safety, as I said, is paramount. So I've got a couple of slides which show that. This was the first time we put one of our helicopters onto a North Sea oil rig. And norm we flew the princess up to Aberdeen, and normally she would have just climbed out of our aircraft onto the helicopter and flown off. But in fact, in this occasion, she had to go into the Bristow's hangar to look at the video, the same video that the oil workers watch every time they go out to a rig, so they know what to do in the event of the helicopter alighting on water. And also, of course, <coughs> she had to put on an immersion suit, which I think goes to prove she could look attractive wearing almost anything. <laughs> Now, we got two days' warning of Prince William's first flight, and we sent our engineering officer and our adjutant down to Mother Care in Reading and said, come back with a carry cot and a carry cot restraint. Remember in those days, you could put your children sideways on the back seat 
and you put a bright orange thing round it and clip it to the uh, seatbelt thing and it would stay safe. That's exactly what we did to a double seat in the Royal Cabin. And if we'd met turbulence going over the uh, Pennines on the way to Aberdeen, then he would have been absolutely safe. When they got to Aberdeen, they picked him out of our carry cot, put him in their own little bassinet, just laid it on the back seat of their car and drove off. But we'd done our bit. It wasn't long before, of course, he got a partner in crime, but that is actually Prince William two years afterwards doing his first solo royal flight. And he'd obviously been briefed by his parents what to do at the bottom of the steps, shaking hands with Group Captain Jones there, uh, uh, much to the delight of about 60 photographers. And there, as I mentioned earlier, is his partner in crime. I sent that a picture to him on his 21st birthday. I won't tell you what I got in the reply. Her Majesty was very keen to be involved with those who fly her. And this picture was taken on the occasion of the delivery of the third 146 just in December 1990. And she met the crew that were going to fly her out to Marham because she was spending Christmas at Sandringham. Windsor Castle was just recovering from the fire at the time. And uh, while she was there, she sat for a crew photograph. That is the Queen's flight, 170 people. If you ignore the front row, which are the air crew and a few fancy uniforms, um, there's one Royal Naval pilot there. One of her helicopters was always flown by the Royal Navy pilot, uh, really because of the links of Prince Philip and uh, the Prince of Wales and uh, Prince Andrew, who both did their uh, operational flying with the fleet air arm on helicopters. Um, one civilian, who's the civilian secretary who dealt with the royal household. Behind are all the normal trades, airframes, electrics, engineers, but we also had uh, carpet fitters, carpenters, car drivers, car servicing personnel, refueling personnel, our own avionics section, uh, policemen, comsen, and admin staff, office staff, as well as operations officers. So it was a real, everything was done, the major servicing and um, everything was done at Royal Air Force Benson until health and safety came round and they stopped them painting the aircraft in the hangar and we had to send them out to uh, uh, other places, uh, so-called professional paint uh, setups. But in 1994, there was a review of Royal and VIP flying. And the Pocock report actually stated that the Queen's flight needed expanding. And it was suggested that a couple of 125s from Northolk come to Benson and join the Queen's flight. Ministry of Defence then uttered the immortal words, we think we can do it cheaper. The net result was the Queen's flight was disbanded on the 31st of March, 1995. And the following day, a date not lost on some of us, <coughs> number 32 squadron overnight became number 32, the Royal Squadron. Now, as far as the aircrew were concerned, that was fine because the 146 aircrew came in with the 146s, the helicopters came in with their crews, the 125s were already operated at uh, North Oak, so that was fine. One or two minor admin changes, but that basically worked seamlessly. And we got three 146s, two Wessex helicopters, and six 125s. But if I go back to this picture, 
The front row of aircrew went over, but four operations staff, six policemen, six engineers were all that went over. So <clears throat> why was that? Because RAF Northolt had a civilian company providing uh, engineers, contractorization as the Royal Air Force called it, um, and they almost overnight had to learn two new aircraft and learn them to royal standards. Now, that's pretty damn near impossible. The company were relying on a lot of the guys from the Queen's flight retiring and going to work for them. What they hadn't thought about was the cost of housing in the Ricelip area versus the Whitney area. And consequently, the guys couldn't afford to move. So very few did. They were lucky at the same time Hatfield was closing. So they picked up, and even better, they picked up some 146 engineers from Hatfield. So there were a bit of gain and a bit of loss. But that first year was very, very difficult, particularly on the engineering side. And there were two very serious incidents. Um, luckily, neither of them were royals on board. One of them involved an aircraft getting airborne for some training out of Northolt going to Stansted. By the time he was downwind, he'd lost one engine through lack of oil. Another one failed on finals. And the third one, while they were taxiing in, the fourth one did last, and they taxied in. But the reason? It was a mag plug underneath, and the same had happened to British Midland Airways, where they took off from East Midlands, diverted to Luton about eight months earlier. And the CAA came up with the idea that you never change two at a time. Well, all four had been changed this time because the RAF or the civilian engineering within the RAF hadn't got picked up the same regulations. Um, I described that first year with the analogy of the swan. It may have looked serene on the surface, but there was a hell of a lot of paddling going on underneath. But I've got to say that the guys, you know, came good in the end. It took time, as we, we knew it would. But the costs of it, I'm not sure they were the cost savings that the Ministry of Defence originally thought. Because once some of the RAF guys started to retire, they had to be replaced. And the costs of some of these civilian courses is actually quite a lot. But that's probably a general thing about contractorisation, whether it's good or bad. But uh, I just saw it effectively from the outside, and it was actually quite difficult. The aircraft we gained was the 125. Wonderful little sports car. It was lovely. Um, I happened to fly it as the examiner before I went to the Queen's flight, so I knew the 125. And that flew with two pilots and a steward. There wasn't really much room for anybody else. That was his galley, an eight-inch square sink, a hot tap and a cold tap. So food had to be really cold food, a salad if you wanted a main meal, um, and sandwiches or afternoon tea. The cabin, there was no uh, separate royal cabin. That door led to the loo, so there was no privacy. So it was decided generally that it would be the male members of the royal family who would use it when they were going on their own. If the Duke of Kent was going to Manchester to open a factory with his private secretary, it wouldn't matter whether he took a 146 or a 125. The time involved was very, very similar. And the 125 was perfect for that. But if he wanted to go to Germany for a week visiting his three regiments with all his uniform and baggage and his military ADC and his baggage master and so forth, 
the 125 couldn't really cope, so then they would use the 146. So the 125 did do um, a lot of internal and a few trips to Europe, but not many. But it was a worldwide operation. During my 20 years, I travelled around most of the world, with the exception of Australia, New Zealand, and most of Canada. I did land on the East Coast, as the same as I did land in Darwin en route to Papua New Guinea once. But generally speaking, we didn't go to Australia, New Zealand, and uh, Canada. Now, why was that? Well, if you think about it, they're the senior Commonwealth. And their, Royal, their Air Force, in the case of the Australian Air Force, or Qantas Airlines are allowed to fly the Royal Family, the Canadian Armed Forces, or Air Canada, and the Royal New Zealand Air Force, and Air New Zealand. You might remember about 14, 15 years ago, Her Majesty flew to New Zealand on an Air New Zealand 747 out of uh, Gatwick. It, they took over the whole of the first-class compartment. It was the first time Her Majesty had flown on a civilian-scheduled aircraft. In the early days, um, once uh, jet travel became feasible, the early Comet 2s of the Royal Air Force used to take the VIPs on the longer part of the journey, and then the Queensfide aircraft would go out and do the internal flying. Once the Comets folded, of course, the VC-10 came in and did many sterling trips until it was really forced out because of the fuel prices and the noise levels. It was banned from a lot of airfields. After that, there wasn't really anything suitable within the Royal Air Force, so they tended to charter uh, civilian aircraft, generally British Airways, and the 767 or 777 became quite a popular thing. To help offset the cost of it, they would allow the press to travel out in economy, and uh, they would pay a fare to travel. Um, they'd also fill it up after Britannia folded. Uh, they also used to take the Royal Marine Band, which would be playing at certain engagements overseas. So they took also the, um, a lot of baggage. Royal tours do carry a lot of baggage, including a lot of crockery and cutlery, because... Her Majesty always goes to, on a state arrival, the host country always give her a dinner on the first night or the second night. And on the last but one, she will normally give a return dinner, either at a big hotel or at the British Embassy, if it happens to be big enough. And the crockery and cutlery for that are taken out from Buckingham Palace. And it's not any old crockery and cutlery. It's George IV crockery. And... It is loaded on the aircraft, not by the British Airways baggage handlers, but <laughs> by members of the royal household. And the members of the household are lucky enough to travel on board. As soon as the aircraft lands, the royal party disappear, but they don't. Their job is to offload it and put it on what is often the transport provided is a three-tonner, but nevertheless, they do it very, very carefully. If a royal tour is decided that it will be done by the Royal Air Force. That's when operations come into use. They book the handling agents, the refueling, the hotels, and so forth, including all the diplomatic clearances. Every country we overfly, we have to have a diplomatic clearance to tell them where we're entering, what height we're flying at, what route, and where we're either landing or where we're leaving their airspace. Why? Because we demand the same of other countries. Now... I'm going to talk now a little bit about a royal tour. 
and I've picked one. It happened in the 1980s. It doesn't matter. It was to East Africa, as you can see. We started down in Maputo at the capital and then through Mozambique into Zambia, up through Tanzania, operating mainly out of Dar es Salaam. Then we spent the uh, weekend in Mombasa before going up via Mogadishu, possibly, or no, almost certainly, the worst night stop I have ever spent in my life, um, on through Djibouti to the Sudan. And then part of our visit to the Sudan was out to this area here, which is the Dofar region, which was in the news then because of uh, uh, problems with refugees, the same as is still in the news today. Now, the first place I'm going to look at is an upcountry arrival. I mentioned about state visits and 21-gun salutes, but when you get upcountry, it gets a lot more friendly. This is the Princess Royal with only about a dozen people in the meet-up group, and they had children who were dancing and singing. They had their own band there as well. And then behind her, if you look, what I call the mamas, who were all dressed in their national dress and... Uh, they shriek an arrival, so it's a very noisy, happy arrival, exactly the opposite from the rather stuffy state arrivals you get. The other airfield I want to look at is a place called Zalingi. Now, the Princess Royal was going to go to a refugee camp on the Chad border, and uh, it was going to take her, even if we got her in there, four hours to drive. So they, we knew we could go into Niala because that's where the United Nations were basing their relief effort with Hercules and DC-8s and so forth. So they said, can you go into Zalingi? Well, we looked on a map and there was a little circle there indicating that there had been an airstrip there. Uh, of course, it's long before you could just pump up Google Earth and have a look at it and say, oh, yeah, that'll be fine. We had no idea what was there. So we asked our air attaché but he wasn't a lot of use because he was down in uh, Kenya, uh, based in Kenya, but he covered the Sudan, so he couldn't help. We went to MOD where there was a department that showed us some photographs of Zalingi airstrip, but they were about 15 years old. So we ended up on the recce flight, which we were doing with the household, while they were sorting out something in Nyala. We hired, uh, chartered an aircraft and from Save the Children Fund, in fact, and flew to Zalingi. Now, there's the airstrip. And we were told we were parking under this tree. <laughs> anyway, I had a look at it, and when we landed, there were some quite large stones on the airstrip, and the Andover props are rather prone to getting damaged with that. So we said, right, could you please clear the large stones? Yes, that'll be fine. Uh, could you get some fire cover in? Yes, with the local fire brigade will come in. Um, and I looked at the airfield and I thought, you know, if the visibility's not that good, a few white stones painted along the edge would help. So they said, yes, we can do that. And just as we were about to leave, the guy who was looking after us said, uh, do you want to arm guard? Because there are still dissidents in this area. <laughs> So as we were going to be on the ground for four hours, because the arrangement was we couldn't take off until we knew she was safely at the uh, refugee camp, I said, yes, please. So roll on six weeks now. And the Save the Children aircraft has landed, and he actually operated as our air traffic because there was no air traffic there. The guy who was flying it was seconded from Britannia Airways, one of their young co-pilots, to gain experience. And wow, what experience it was flying out there.
But they'd taken me at my word, look, two white stones. <laughs> and we're looking for the security. And I couldn't see anything, so I, I said, look, we'll land. Everyone's waiting for us, so we'll land. And just as I was about to land, just about when this photograph was taken by the navigator, the co-pilot said, hey, I've spotted something. Now, I'll blow it up so you can all see. <laughs> and he was there with a, 30, uh, a Lee Enfield 303 rifle over his shoulder, sat, in, sat on his horse. And uh, so they'd landed, so, so did we. And we parked under our tree. And there in the middle, you can just make out the Princess Royal there. And if you look carefully, this is all our passengers. It's the local defence force, it's the local council, and Save the Children Fund staff. And there's one guy look, looking the other way. Any guesses? Policeman, yes. That's the personal protection officer doing his job. And in fact, just after that, he came on board. And this was one of those where we had made it spot on time. You know, plus or minus five seconds, blow it, it was plus or minus two, I think. And he came on board, he said, you proud of that doors time, Graham? I said, oh, yes, that was very good. He said, yeah, he said, I've just looked around. Not one of those people's got a watch on, so it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> <laughs> but they had welcomed the princess. I'm not going to complain about the spelling of welcome because I can't read the Arabic script, but they'd done their best. And for three and a half hours, he rode round on his horse and guarded us. After two hours, oops, sorry. After two hours, this dog arrived, so it wasn't his, it was just a, a pie dog. Um, and then, of course, when you come to leave, as we did two days later, picking up a you everybody lined up, but you cover them. There's nothing you can do about it, you cover them with sand. Now, the other thing we do when we go and look at airstrips is we have to organise refuelling, because... Uh, most of those sort of strips, you have to land as light as possible and take off as light as possible, really, but with enough fuel, obviously, to get to your next destination. We used to just ring Shell UK in London and say, on such and such a day, we want so much fuel at such and such a airstrip, and they never let us down. It would normally arrive on the back of a truck in 45-gallon drums, and if you have fuel in 45-gallon drums, you need a woggle pump, and that's a woggle pump, and to get it to work... You do this. And it took five hours to fill an Andover and nine hours to fill a 146. But we would never fill up. We would just go as much fuel to get you to your next destination. And again, we would try and do it towards the evening, just before it got dark, because you couldn't do it in the heat of the noonday sun. The other thing that's very important from the safety element is the fire cover. Now, this is in Niala in uh, Tanzania. And he was very proud of this. He said, it's British, and it was built in 1831. <laughs> I noticed one small problem. <laughs> so I said to him, where's the wheel? And he said, uh, oh, it's on the Land Rover. <laughs> so you've got to ask the supplementary, haven't you? And I did. And sure enough, they'd only got a one wheel for that if they had four wheels on the Land Rover. So we told the High Commission, and about three days later, the British Council in Niala um, gave them three new Land Rover wheels. So when we went back on the actual flight, uh, which was about a month later, uh, they'd got two wheels on that and a spare, and the Land Rover had four wheels and a spare, and this had had another coat of paint. 
But you won't be surprised to know that that is not enough fire cover for uh, the uh, Andover to land with, uh, with the royal family on board and about 20 others. So we had to get a airfield fire tender driven from Dar es Salaam. It took us two hours to fly. It took them four days to get there. Had they not got there, we couldn't have done the trip. Now, I mentioned those uh, flags, those standards. That's actually the Duke of Edinburgh's personal standard, and uh, it comes up through a sextant, sextant mounting. There's no sextant on the 146, but the Andover uh, was fitted for a sextant, and so they fitted a sextant mounting so we could put the two flagpoles up, and if we were overseas, then once they were up, we'd just twist a little bit and they'd go into a V, and uh, they'd be country one on the left and the royal standard on the right got plenty to choose from that's the flag store at north holt um some you might recognize canada's somewhere there brazil um japan this one's interesting you all know the royal standard that flies over buckingham palace um or windsor castle when her majesty's in residence this is the royal standard for the commonwealth so when I went to India one day and we were flying the Queen the next day, uh, I said to the crew chief, have you got the standard? And he said yes, and he pulled it out, and it was the one I know, knew and loved. And my policeman was a very senior guy, and he'd done a number of overseas tours. I said, that's the wrong one. We need the big E. And I said, the what? And he said, the big E. And it was this one. Luckily, the mobile phones worked. We had half an hour before the British Airways 767 was taking off from Heathrow, and they grabbed it drove it across to Heathrow and handed it in an envelope to the captain of the British aircraft. And once BA had landed, the 21-gun salute had gone and everyone had disappeared, I sidled over to the side of the 767, tapped it, and with a big grin on his face, he dropped me this envelope down. The next morning, when we took off or taxied out with Her Majesty on board, we had the right standard, and I still had a job. <laughs> now, I promised to show you a picture of an aircraft going on its very last royal flight 30 years after it was delivered. I show it as testament to our engineers, both the military ones and the civil ones, because I will guarantee you that aircraft looked better on the 31st of March 1998 than it did the day it was delivered by Westlands. They kept them in immaculate condition. It's not in bad condition now if you happen to go to the RAF Museum and sit down in the Wessex Cafe and just look over there. The Wessex there is that very one. The other Wessex is down in Western Supermare at the Helicopter Museum down there. Once the Wessex finished, and it finished because it was taking about 10 hours of engineering for every one hour's flying, it just wasn't going to be practical, there was no suitable RAF helicopter to take its place. So Her Majesty bought a helicopter, a Sikorsky S-76, Initially, it was based at Blackbush, but has moved more recently to Royal Air Force Odium. And in fact, the aircraft, after 10 years, has been changed to an updated 767. The crews and staff are now members of the Royal Household. And there is the aircraft, um, beautiful aircraft, much faster than the Wessex. So it's meant that helicopter trips can now be done further afield, up to probably Newcastle, whereas in the old days it was really Birmingham. And, and Kent were the big helicopter bits. But um, now they do go further afield. They also, uh, they own that one. They charter uh, another one, which is sort of almost on permanent charter from a company up in N Nottinghamshire. 
uh, and Augusta 109. Um, but nowadays, there's very, very little royal flying done by 32, the Royal Squadron, um, because the money changed hands. Instead of paying for the running of the Queen's flight, I think the idea was that the Ministry of Defence thought they'd get that money and save that money and use it for something else. But sadly, the money wasn't given to the Ministry of Defence. It was taken off them and given to the royal households to spend on travel. And the result was they started to charter aircraft, and it's become more and more civil charter. Uh, you might remember when Her Majesty went to uh, Dublin on the first state visit there, they flew in a civilian uh, 146, which, you know, was ridiculous, which didn't have the security stuff on that our own 146 had, but that was the way the thing had gone, because it was probably cheaper. Um, so... When Her Majesty went to, on a state visit to Berlin in 2015, here was the aircraft, and you can see the captain holding a stick with the flag on out of the window with Her Majesty. Now, the next day, they were going to Frankfurt. But, of course, she'd flown out. All her staff had gone out ahead of her. But this time, they needed to go with her. So that aircraft couldn't take them. So the Germans lent them an A340, of all things, so there was plenty of room on board to do that trip. That same aircraft was used again last year in Poland when uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge took the children. That's the aircraft. It's actually owned by the chairman of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, and when he doesn't want it, he puts it to brokers at London City to, to, to get trade. And that's how they, do, they operate now. I don't know what the security setup is on them. So I have a feeling we've lost a little bit on security, but sadly that's the way of the modern world, accountants are running it. But the RAF does have the Voyager, and uh, you may well have seen the Prime Minister uh, travelling on the Voyager quite a number of times, and the Prince and Prince... Uh, Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall have also used it. So we are getting back into royal flying, but until we get aircraft dedicated for it, um, I don't think we're going to see any major changes, which is a great pity because the, over that, those years of royal flying, the Royal Air Force did it absolutely superbly, right up to almost uh, the last couple of years when, sadly, the bookings just almost died. Now, I'm often asked, have I got a favourite destination? Yes, I have. It's a place called Chitral, and it's in the Hindu Kush in Pakistan, right up against the Afghan border. And uh, I've been there about five times. The first time was in an old Andover Mark I back in 1969 when I was out in Sharjah. Um, a British army, uh, uh, army guy was climbing in the Hindu Kush, and he had a heart attack, and we were asked to go out there. Um, but it is a phenomenal thing. I used to be able to talk about it glibly, but until Michael Palin did his Himalaya series. And it was one of the two villages that played polo against each other in episode two, if you remember that. Um, anyway, he went over the Lowry Pass at 10,000 feet and down 92 hairpin bends in a sort of Russian-built Land Rover. We flew over at 12,000, dropped into the valley, came to a Y junction, took the left-hand fork, and when we could see Mount Tirishmir, which is 25,290 feet high, um, in the distance, we knew we were in the right valley. 
So we're flying down the valley looking for the airfield. We thought that was it at first, but it wasn't. Get a bit closer and you can now see it. Now, obviously, if you go back to this one, you land going that way and you take off coming this way. So let's look now. There's the approach. It's at about 40 degrees to the runway. So it's what we call an exciting arrival. Um, and if you look now, that's a Pakistan Air, Air Force Hercules. If it's turned around pointing the other way, that's the view. So as well as the turn, you've got to come over this little ridge which had the uh, uh, local boss's house on the end, um, and then you turn into dispersal there. Now, we were due to take the Princess of Wales in there, and sadly, when we looked at the forecast, there was cloud cover over the valley. Now, it didn't matter what age you got on board. There was no way you could get in there without it, it being clear. The forecast was it would clear by 2 o'clock. So we were due to be there at 1. So I, we were in Peshawar, down to the south. So I said, let's eat the meal that we would have had in the air on the ground, and then we'll get you there as soon as possible. And the princess said, I don't mind if we go back to Islamabad. I said, I think you'll regret it. It's a wonderful place. And I said, but the only thing is, when you get there, you will be late, but you must, must be back on time because we've got to get out of that valley before it gets dark. So we landed, the weather had cleared, we landed, and this was her first view of Chitral. And I think you'll see why I think it's absolutely stunning. And uh, she came back, bless her, ten minutes early, so we were able to have a crew photograph. I think that's absolutely fabulous. She found these four kids... She said, I don't know who they are, but aren't they lovely? Can they be in the photo? <laughs> so she was wearing the uniform of the Chitrali Scouts. This carpet was provided by Buck Rogers, who had bought it for his wife. I suspect it's now in the loft, like most things we bring back off route. But uh, there it is. Um, now, the other thing is, I'm asked, my most memorable trip. Well, you were all watching television. It was 7 p.m. on the 31st of August, 1997. And, of course, I'd picked up the body of the Princess of Wales and flown her out of Villacou Blade to land at Northolt. I'd flown her over 200 times, so in a way, I was glad I was the one that was able to bring her back on her last journey. On the Monday night, my wife and my two children went up with me and we laid our flowers in about row two. Now, this picture was taken on the Thursday when we went back to sign the Book of Condolence. We queued up from 1 o'clock until about 10 to 9 in the evening. And as I walked into St. James's Palace, one of the PPOs said, Graham, you haven't queued up, have you? And I said, yes. He said, oh, you should have rung up. You could have easily come up. We'd have let you in. I said, I wouldn't have missed it for all the world. After about five hours, you know how reticent we are in queues? After about five hours, we started chatting to the people in front of us. I was being very careful not to let on. But just before we went into the front door, the woman in front said, you know more about this than you're letting on, don't you? I have no idea how she cottoned on to that, but nevertheless. The other memorable trip was my very last one on uh, 32 of the Royal Squadron, which was a five-day tour with the Prince of Wales. I was his personal pilot, and I'd flown him over 700 times, so it was nice to do my very last trip. My last three were Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, after her 100th birthday, uh, Her Majesty and Prince Philip, and then the very last one with, with the boss, as I call him. And he presented me with a lovely colour uh, photograph of him in Royal Air Force uniform signed. And he also presented me with some wonderful Asprey silver 
cufflinks, which I'm wearing proudly tonight, if anyone wants to look at them later, um, uh, as a thank you gift for flying him for well, almost 20 years, 19 and a half years. Well, that is 101 years of royal history of flying and my 20-year involvement with it. Thank you very much. I'll be more than happy to answer questions. hope I haven't banged on too long. But uh, anyway, thank you very much indeed.